Good morning, Southbridge. Welcome. We're glad that you are here. We're glad that we're able to gather together. If you're a guest today, it's your first time. If you just take a couple moments, look in your worship program. There's a card we call a connection card. If you'd fill out, that would be great. Before we get into the message this morning, I just want to spend a couple moments celebrating and updating you, giving you some important news. Um, some of you may not have realized, but today is not Easter, but Jesus Christ is still risen. Amen. Amen. We celebrate that. That is reason to praise God for sure every week. Now, you know that last week obviously was Easter, and we were outside, and we want to celebrate some of the things that God did. One, He gave us a beautiful day to be gathered together, and so we praise Him for that. But then we also praise Him for, as you may have seen in the announcement video where you were coming in, for those of you who weren't in here for that, um, we had more people gathered together than we've ever had on a, any kind of gathering we've ever done as a church, but that's not the biggest deal. We had more people make decisions for Jesus Christ than we've ever had before, and uh, we're going to celebrate that. But let me just share this with you. In Luke chapter 15... In verse 7 and in verse 10, both of them say this, that the angels, when one person who's a sinner, which is all of us, one person who's a sinner repents, that means they turn from their sin, they turn from going after satisfaction in this world, turn from their own way that was headed for hell and death, and they turn to Jesus Christ. It says the angels before God celebrate, they have a party in heaven, and all of heaven rejoices. Luke chapter 15, verses 7 and 10. So it's a bigger deal than when Duke wins the national championship, okay? And all the people from NC State said, Amen. That's right. And one did. One did say it. So if one person does that, all of heaven rejoices. Now, we, we, it's hard to get an accurate count, but a very conservative number is we believe we had 40 people pray to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior, make a profession of faith last week. And so, yeah, we give the Lord a hand. And just rejoice in your heart. For those of you who celebrate in different ways, it's just that you rejoice in your heart over the fact that even if one of those was genuine, uh, then all of heaven was rejoicing. And we know that some of those people were rededicating their lives. And it's hard to get an accurate count. You know, the ushers try to count, but some people are hand up, hand up, hand up, back up, back up. Who's new? And all that kind of stuff. But a real conservative number was 40 people. And we followed up with some of them. We keep getting stories of different folks. I have one person who's a friend of mine, says his brother-in-law had been coming to church for a little while and uh, placed his faith in Christ that day. My wife told me um, when I was praying in the second service, she was in the second service last week, and she said that she heard people praying out loud, the sinner's prayer, uh, to trust Christ as I was praying. And, and there are some folks we've gotten their stories and been able to follow up with them, connect with them. My favorite story that I've heard so far was uh, from a lady. I called her, and she told me I could share some of her story. Her and her friend were actually coming to Target, and Target was closed, praise God, Yes, on Sunday. <laughs> and so they saw this crowd of people that were hanging out between the theater and the Target, and they came over there, and our hospitality team was super welcoming to them, and our ushers invited them in. They came, they attended the service, and one of those two ladies prayed to receive Christ. Now, I thought to myself, yeah, we can give the Lord a hand for that too. Celebrate that. I was thinking about it before I called her. I thought, now, what was this lady's story? She's like going to buy a basket, and she came home with eternal life. Like, what happened? And so I wanted to know. And so I called her up and I talked. And first I talked to her about serious stuff. Hey, you need to get connected in a local church. You know, we'd love to get you plugged in here, serving in relationships with other believers. Baptism's the next step. We're going to be baptizing people today. So if you trusted Christ last week or if you've never been baptized as a believer, you can get baptized today. And I'll tell you about that after the service. But um, we're, I told her about that stuff. Told her about follow, you know, the follow-up things, about growing in a relationship with Jesus. But then I said, can I ask you, this sounds like a weird question, but this is the way it plays out in my head. And I told her the basket thought. And I said, well, can I ask you, what were you going to buy at Target? And she says, actually, my friend was going to take back some candy. And so the real story is, she's not even going to get anything at Target. She went home with Jesus. And so we're excited about that. God changing people's lives. And uh, he's at work and he's alive. And uh, that's evidence of it, the fact that he's still working and changing our lives. And so we celebrate that. But maybe you're one of those 40 people. And to rededicate your life to Jesus or trusted Jesus as your Savior. And it's exciting. It's the most important decision you ever make in your life. It changes eternity. A bigger deal than anything else you'll ever decide here. But then what? 
And some of you have been Christians for a little while. Maybe you ask yourself that question. So what happens? You know, these people trust Christ. And some of you didn't let us know that you trusted Christ on a Connect card. If you're one of those people, I'd love for you to come up to me after the service today. Or if you write it down on your card, we've got some information we want to give you. But what happens next? So you make that huge decision. Let me tell you what that is. It's like you're at the starting line of a race. There's multiple times in the New Testament where the Christian life is described as a race. And it's like the starting line, and you just took off. So it's the beginning. In fact, in the book of Philippians, it says it like this, that God began a good work in you at that moment of salvation. Philippians chapter 1, and verse 6, it says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete that work until the day of Christ Jesus. And so until you die or Jesus comes back, he's continuing to do a work in you. It's a work of growing you and maturity. It's the work he's doing for some of you. You trusted Christ a long time ago. He's still doing that work in you. It's a work of maturity. So you can get to the point where the guy who wrote the book of Philippians talks about being where everything you do in your life is to live for Christ and to die is gain. That's maturity. Or it's a, it would be awesome if you could die and go be with Jesus. That's victory. But everything you do here is to live for Christ. And what you do is you cross the starting line. Some people talk about being a baby in Christ. You talk about being born again is another analogy that the scriptures use. And so you're a baby in Christ because everything's new to you. And what happens is you continue to grow. And so you start to learn church. It's like adolescence. It's that awkward stage. Like how, do I, how does this like subculture of Christianity really function and learn the language? It's like middle school. So what happens there? And then you grow to the next stage and you start becoming a young adult. And eventually you get to a place of maturity. And you can reproduce yourself and impact other people in this world for Jesus Christ. And that's a journey that almost everybody here is on. Some of you need to begin that journey today. But we're going to talk about from that book that I mentioned, the Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, a passage of scripture. We're going to pick up in a series we had started just before Easter in the book of Philippians, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12 today, growing in our faith. And we're going to talk about today standing out for Christ. Philippians chapter 2, if you have a copy of the scripture, I invite you to turn there with me. In Philippians chapter 2, if you're new to the scriptures, the book of Philippians in the New Testament is towards the back of the New Testament. And there are several books in a row that are about the same length, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, or Gentiles eat pork chops, would be another way to remember that, General Electric Power Company, there's lots of little ways that you can remember that, but towards the back of the New Testament, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, the third book, and then Colossians. And what's happening here, I've been doing this series that really started back in that verse that I mentioned, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it. And so what's happening is the guy who's writing this book is a church planter. His name's Paul. And he's writing back to a church that he helped plant and giving them a thank you letter for some financial support they had sent so he could keep preaching the gospel in other places. And he's writing them back, and then, but doesn't just say thanks. He tells them how to grow in their spiritual journey. He says, he who began a good work and you'll be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And then he goes on and he tells them, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And in the passage right before the one we're going to read today, he was talking about Jesus Christ, our servant king, as our ultimate example. He said, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus. You should have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God was equal with God, but didn't consider that something to be held on to, but held it open-handedly. And so part of spiritual growth is we hold everything open-handedly. We live this life for Christ. And he became obedient, and obedience is a huge part of the Christian life. And he became obedient to the point of death, the ultimate point, but not just death, death on a cross. And what ended up happening was, the scripture says, those who humble themselves will be exalted, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. He humbled himself to the lowest place. And every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so then what? Well, look at what it says next. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends... As you've always obeyed. And so he's encouraging them. These are his friends, not rebuking them. He said, my beloved, it's very pastoral what he says here. As you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. 
continue. And so he's encouraging, he's spurring them on. Continue to do what you're already doing. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He began this good work and you continue to grow in that good work. For it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Verse 14, it gets real practical. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice. He's talking about his martyrdom there. Even if I get killed, even if I'm poured out, even if I give it all for Christ, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. That's what Paul's talking about here is standing out for Christ. If you want to go back, hopefully you brought a copy of the scriptures with you. If not, we give them away for free over there. But if you go back in the verse and look at it, we won't pop this up on the screen. Verse 15 talks about shine like stars. The reason why this will happen is so that you will shine like stars. The stuff that he's already talked about in this passage is so you'll stand out. So you shine like a light in darkness. You'll shine like a star in the universe. But then he says, like this crooked, in this crooked and depraved generation. So you stand out in the generation you live in. To the Philippians, he's writing to people who are in the actual generation of people that nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. And so saying to Jews, he's saying, you have been waiting for your Messiah, you've been hoping for your Messiah, everything's been based on your Messiah, he came, you nailed him to a tree. That's the crooked and depraved generation they live in. And what is it for us? I don't think I have to spend a bunch of time proving or illustrating that we live in a crooked and depraved generation now. I was watching a news program this week and saw Ron Reagan, that's Ronald Reagan, the former president's son, he's an outspoken atheist, was speaking on behalf of a, a group called Freedom From Religion, and at the end he kind of made a little snide comment, because I'm not afraid to burn in hell, and smirked. That's acceptable, that's normal, that's the thought process by many in this generation. And we're to stand out in this generation. It shouldn't take much to be different, because that's what stands out. Like a light in darkness, like a star in the galaxy, shine like a star in the universe amongst this crooked and depraved generation. Stand out. Think about what it is that stands out. So when you see something that's different, if you leave here today and you walk over, say you're walking at Jason's Deli. I know several folks from Southbridge go to Jason's Deli for lunch. You're walking over there, you walk in front of Barnes and Noble, some guy comes walking by with his dog. No big deal. You don't notice. If somebody's walking by with a kangaroo, you pay attention. It's not normal here. I don't know if it's normal in Australia, but at least they have them there. But if somebody comes walking by here with a kangaroo, it stands out to us. You see it because it's different. This week I was scrolling through my Facebook homepage this week, and, and this, just every once in a while something grabs you. It stands out, right? I had a friend who goes to this church who put this picture on his Facebook page. I won't put it up there. I got, it got my attention. I wanted to see, why is there a dog in a back? Why is it normal that I think the kid should be in the backpack for one? But why? There's a kid on a leash and a dog, and not even a small dog, in a backpack. That's different. Stands out. Because things are different, they stand out. What Paul's talking about in this passage of Scripture is that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you know what that means? What we talked about last week, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You've been raised to live in a new way of life. You should stand out. You shouldn't live just like everybody who's still dead in their trespasses and sins. 
Your salvation, what you did when you made that decision to trust Christ, when he began that good work in you, should make a difference in your life so that you stand out in this crooked and depraved generation. So how do we do that? That's what this passage is all about. If you're going to stand out for Christ, you have to work out your salvation. If you're going to stand out, you've got to work out. If you're going to stand out for Jesus Christ, you've got to work out the salvation that he's done in you and what it means in your daily life. The problem is many of us haven't really thought about what it means to work out our salvation. But verse 12, that's what it's saying. Continue, he's saying to them, to work out your salvation. What does that mean to work out our salvation? So many of us, we think about our salvation, and salvation was that thing you did at an Easter service, or an Awana, or a camp, or you came forward, or you cried, or you burned a stick, or something happened. And it was like a moment in time your salvation was. And many of us, the way we treat that salvation is, So I had that moment in time in the past, and it's going to come in really handy someday when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So that's going to be good then. But in the meantime, I just kind of live my life. And so what ends up happening is our salvation makes no difference in the way that we live our lives. I remember when I first became a Christian. I was 18 years old, had a guy tell me about a relationship with Jesus Christ. Same thing I was sharing last week about how you've got to place your trust, you stop trusting in yourself, shift your trust in what Jesus did on the cross. He died to forgive you of your sins and paid for your sins. Your sins, everything that you do apart from faith. And so it's lust and pride and anger and all that stuff, but it's everything you do that's dependent on yourself. I knew I was hopeless, placed my faith in Jesus Christ, started to meet with this guy. We started to study the Bible together. He started to teach me the Bible. And then after a few weeks, he invited me to come to his church. Now, I'd been to churches before. I'd never been to a church that talked about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I knew that his did because he's teaching me this stuff. He's studying the Bible. And you never get to go to church for the first time as a believer more than once. And I remember my first time going to church as a new Christian. And I showed up, and one of the first people I saw was a friend of mine that I played on the football with, on the football team, and he was there. And I was so excited that he came because I thought, maybe God will transform him like he transformed me. And, and the Christian meeting happened, and, and I knew this guy probably wasn't a Christian because he didn't live any different than I did before I became a Christian. In fact, we were actually at a party a few weeks uh, before this church service, and we weren't doing Christian stuff. I'll just say that, and we'll stay there. But then the meeting got over with. The whole gathering got done. And I was so shocked. I went up to him. I said, hey, what are you doing here? And I uh, started talking to him just about stuff we talked about. And I said, hey, listen to what Jesus Christ did in my life. Because I didn't know Bible verses. Like, I didn't know how to, like, tell him the Romans road or tell him Ephesians 2 or any of that stuff. I just said, here's, I got my testimony. It's all I got. So I'm just sharing it with everybody. So I started telling him, here's how Jesus changed my life. I prayed to receive Christ as my Savior. And then I said, what about you? And he says, oh, yeah, I, I did that a long time ago when I was a kid. My grown up going to church here. I'm going to church here every week. I was so confused at that moment. How how come how could he be raised with Christ to a new life and live exactly the way that I was living before I became a Christian? Which got me thinking this week, are there any people in my life, are there any people in your life, that if they showed up here today, they'd be surprised to see you? Somebody from a cubicle, a neighbor, somebody you bump into at a gas station, a friend. They'd think that you were a visitor and maybe you would come to Christ. They just trusted Christ. Do you think that would happen? Maybe they'd come and they'd come and they'd realize, that's why you're so different. It's the, oh, I get it. Now the pieces come together. I don't know. What Paul's talking about here, shining, meaning you stand out and you'd be different. You wouldn't live just like everybody else because you're in this crooked and depraved generation. The thought process that you have, you're going to think different thoughts. You're not going to be conformed to this world. You're going to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which happens through the scriptures. That's part of growing and maturity. He began this good work. He keeps doing the work. 
And this is a big deal to me. It's part of my spiritual heritage, the way that I came to Christ. The guy who ended up sharing Jesus with me, the reason why he was even talking to me about it was because somebody in his life had been changing. You could see the difference. It was his dad when he was 11 years old. And he told me the story. He said, my dad is a Syrian, rough, tough dude, um, swore all the time, gambled, drank, just rough guy. And uh, he said one night, he had poured out all of his beer, but he didn't know that. As an 11-year-old, he's in bed. He came downstairs. There was beer bottles all over the counter. And he said, I came down to the kitchen as an 11-year-old. I thought my dad got toasted. And I said, so, Mom, did Dad drink all the beer? And she said, no, he poured it all out. Something about he got saved. And he had already gone to uh, work. And so he came back from work later that day, and he said, my dad, I noticed he was talking really slow. He said he was talking slow because he used to swear every other word. Now he's trying to control his tongue. And he said, and here he is, and he's all of a sudden he's wanting to like play catch with me, he's wanting to spend time with me, and he was just, he was different. And then on Sunday morning, we all ate breakfast together like we always did as a family, and he said, come on, we're going to church. And we didn't usually go to church together. We went to church, the pastor stood up in the front, he said, we sat in the front row. They didn't know any better, they were new. <laughs> anyway, um, they sat in the front row, and the pastor got up and talked about Jesus died for your sins. You can shift your trust, place your faith in Jesus Christ. He'll give you new life. He'll transform you. He was raised from the dead. He can offer you life. Heard the whole gospel message. So they went out, and they got in the car. And he said, I'm sitting in the middle, my siblings on each side. And my dad sits down, and he turns around, and he looks at me. He goes, that's what happened to me. That's what happened in my life. What that pastor was talking about, that's what I did. And he says, an 11-year-old, I sat there and thought to myself, I don't know if I believe that pastor but I know I have a new dad. And I like that guy a lot better than the one I had before. He was working out his salvation. He was shining in a universe of darkness like a star. You're going to stand out. You've got to work out your salvation. The passage tells us how. Go back to the passage. Verse 12. It says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my brothers, therefore, my dear friends, therefore, my beloved. But you can't go past that word, Therefore. I shared this with you a couple weeks ago. When you're studying the Bible, it's the Bible study principle. If you see the word therefore, you can't start there. You've got to go back. It connects to something else. You'd never start a conversation that way. Whenever you see the word therefore, you've got to ask yourself the question, what is the therefore there for? Why is it here? And what this does is it ties back to the previous passage, which is about Jesus as our example. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And it talks about his selflessly laying his life down, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. But that's just an example. So it's got to tie back to something else. Verses 1 through 4 in chapter 2, and so if you have your Bibles, you can start glancing at this stuff. In chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4, talk about humility, that we shouldn't do anything out of selfish ambition, vain conceit, empty glory. We should consider other people's interests better than our own. And what it ends up talking about, Paul's talking to them because there's disunity in this church. And he's saying the key to unity is humility. That you consider others better than yourself. That you try to serve other people. That you lay your life down. That Jesus is the example of that, but the teaching is the content there. So no problem, no div- div- division, whether it's in church, in a home, at work, is because people have differences. We all have differences. I don't even agree with myself sometimes. Our problems and division come because we're selfish. And so we would be selfless, he's saying, then we'd look different. The very thing that Jesus prayed about in John chapter 17, the world would know that you sent me because the other people are unified. Can you imagine if churches actually did this? But then this is actually a continuation of the teaching that happened in chapter 1 that started in verse 27. And if you remember when we taught that passage, uh, chapter 1, verses 27 to 30 are one long sentence in Greek. The main verb of that sentence happens in verse 27. And it's one word that's translated as a phrase in English 
And the one word translated as the phrase is, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy. And the object of what we're worthy of is worthy of the gospel. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy. That one word in Greek has the root word, polis. The root word means city. It's where we get metropolis from. Well, Paul's saying there when he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy, he's saying, be good citizens, but not of Philippi. And to us, not good American citizens, good heavenly citizens. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. We have a citizenship from heaven, not from here. Our hope is not here. Our hope is in heaven. And we await a Savior. Jesus is coming back. So he came once in the flesh, died for our sins, rose from the dead. He's coming back to get us. And we live as if our hope is in that, as a citizen. So therefore, in verse 12... Ties back to you, not just verses 5 through 8, not just verses 1 through 4, but all the way back to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. Live as heavenly citizens. And what does that look like? It looks like living in humility, considering others better than yourselves. It looks like living like Jesus Christ did, having the same attitude that was in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality to God, to be held onto, held everything open-handed, and became a servant, the lowest kind of servant, the kind that would obey. Obedience is key. We follow his example, he obeyed, obeyed to the point of death. Even death on the worst kind of death, death on a cross. And God exalted him so his name would be above every name, that every knee would bow, Hitler's knee would bow, Nero's knee would bow, Jeffrey Dahmer's knee would bow, and confess. Does that mean they're all in heaven? No, some of them unwillingly bow. But you've bowed, because he began a good work in you. Therefore, he says, therefore, so wrapped up in that word, therefore, is all the theology of Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, down to verse 12, therefore, that's why you can't read past that, continue. Keep doing what you're doing. You obey in my absence? You obey in my presence? Keep doing that. Continue, and what you're doing then is working out your salvation with fear and trembling, with reverence to God, the one who's above all. And so we get twisted. We get tied up sometimes on what it means to work out your salvation. You see that verse pulled out of context, and you start to think it means to earn your salvation. It does not mean to earn your salvation. We talked last week from Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, it tells us, For we are saved by grace through faith, not of works. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Even your faith is a gift from God. You wouldn't even have faith if it wasn't for God giving you faith. Verse 9. Not by works, so that no one can boast. The work was ultimately Christ. And that's what salvation is, is you shift your trust from your works onto the cross of Christ. You no longer trust in your performance. You're trusting in the performance of what Jesus Christ has already done for you. And here we're not talking about earning salvation. Every word in the Bible is important. So if you have a Bible, maybe look back at it, where it says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, continue to work not for your salvation. Continue to work not at your salvation, don't work up your salvation. This is work out your salvation. He began a good work in you, and its outward manifestation is when you live out the implications of what your salvation means in your daily life. I love how the New Living Translation translates this. The New Living Translation is really a paraphrase of the Bible and uh, written very simply, and it interprets this verse. And the New Living Translation, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, reads like this. Dearest friends, where he said, my beloved before, you were always so careful to follow my instructions when I was with you. And now I'm away, you must be even more careful, and here's how he translates to work out your salvation, to put into action God's saving work in your lives, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. In other words, work out the implications of what it means that you have been raised from death to life. 
that you have been given new life, that the old is gone, the new has come, that while you were a sinner, Christ Jesus died for you. Great. It's not just something that happened at camp, Awana, or an Easter service. It has implications for your job. It has implications for your relationship with your kids. It has implications for every friendship you have. It has implications for your finances. It has implications for your sex life. The gospel has implications for everything you say and everything you do. It's not just something that happened at one moment. And so what is the gospel? The gospel is that we're trusting in Jesus' performance, not ours. That he died for our sins, he rose from the dead. So what does it mean in my marriage that I'm no longer trusting in my performance but in Jesus? The gospel tells us that he changes our identity, that we become new people, that old is gone, that new has come, that we are sons and daughters of the king. What does it mean that I have a new identity? What does it mean that my sins are forgiven, that I've been washed clean, that I can walk in freedom? How does that impact how I do everything else in my life? Eventually it gets me to the place where I'm mature and for me to live as Christ, so everything I do here on this earth is ultimately for Christ. So even if I suffer, that's a blessing because now I get fellowship with Jesus in some small way. I'll never suffer like he did on the cross because I'm trusting in the performance he did so I'll never be forsaken by my father. So what are the implications of the gospel in every area of your life? That's what it is to work out your salvation. But working out your salvation is hard work. In this passage and in other passages, Paul alludes to it like running. Later he says, I don't want to run for nothing. I don't want to labor in vain in the same passage. Peter O'Brien, the commentator, tells us that that's a continuous, strenuous effort that he's talking about here. That we're working with everything that we have. All of our muscles are straining. We're striving forward. Right now, at this very moment, there are people that are running a marathon in the city. The Rock and Roll Marathon, downtown Raleigh. That's continuous, strenuous effort. Some of you know I ran a marathon about a month ago. My wife graciously put on Facebook that I passed out at the end of that race. Um, so kind. I'll tell you the whole story some other time. We get to another running analogy in Philippians 3, maybe then. But it, what ended up happening was I ran this race. I got to the finish line. I couldn't go any further. I told the, I, the EMTs came. It was dramatic. And you can, we, I'm not ready to laugh quite yet. But anyway, the, I was there. And this one EMT looks at me. And his name was Quincy. I said, Quincy, I just couldn't go any further. At 26.2 and two steps. That's what I had. And that was it. Because it was a continuous, strenuous effort. It was everything that I had. That's what we're talking about when we talk about working out our salvation. Because what are we doing when we work out our salvation? We're following the example of Jesus Christ. What happened with him when he was obeying, obeying to the point of death? He became so exhausted he couldn't carry his cross. He cries out on the cross, I thirst. It's finished. We're following that example in doing what? Well, what is your life? Pastor Jad mentioned a passage of scripture in the first service in Hebrews chapter 12. It says to keep our eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith. Well, just before that, it talks about throwing off all the sin that so easily entangles. And running the race has been marked out before. It's a faith journey. It's just an analogy. It's not really talking about running. For some of you, what it means to work out your salvation is to forsake sin. That's been slowing you down. It's been hindering you maybe your whole life. But certainly for a time, you can keep going back to it. For some of you, it's getting past something you did in the past. It's hindering you. It's stopping you, throwing off all that stuff. That's hard work. It takes a lot of work. For some of you, it's forgiving somebody who hurt you. Maybe a spouse. Maybe you had an unfaithful spouse. You need to forgive that person. For some people, and for, this might be for one person today. It might be for somebody who's watching online. For some of you, you know what it was like to be close with Jesus at one point. And it was the best time in your life. And you were in the Word, and you were with other Christian friends, and you were close, but something happened, and for some reason, you went away from that. And it takes incredible courage 
to come back. Think of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Superhuman courage. To, he was wasting his life on women and debauchery, but he knew he had a father who loved him, but that is still, he's trying to figure out other ways, and, but then eventually he gets the courage to go back. Some of you, that's what it means to work out your salvation. It's hard work. For some of you, it means dealing with a difficult boss. For some of you, have special needs kids, and it's extra work. It's hard work. Some of you have got a bunch of kids, and they're driving you crazy, and it's hard work. That's working out your salvation. Continuous, strenuous effort. But, in case you think to yourself, Jesus did his work on the cross, and now it's on me to work out my salvation. Because the commandment's given to you, right? Work out, continue to work out your salvation. In case you think that, lest you think that now it's on you to live the Christian life. Trusted Jesus, Easter service, Awana, put a stick in the fire, whenever that was. And now it's up to me. Now, look at verse 13. Verse 13, Paul knows they might think this. They might think to themselves and working out their salvation, it's on them. Verse 13, for it's God who works in you. To will, that's a desire word. You wouldn't even have the desire to obey if it wasn't for God. To will and to act, to actually do it according to his good purpose, the plan of redemption. So it's God, it's not, so who is it? Because it said work out your salvation. You're saying it's continuous, strenuous effort. Is it me? But then it says here, for it's God that does the work in me. So is it me or is it God? Yes. You like that answer? Here's the deal. God gives us a ton of commandments throughout the scripture. And we are held accountable for doing those commandments. We have responsibility. It's a theologian. They talk about God's sovereignty and free will. And the reality is, yes. And our limited minds, we cannot fathom how it actually works. But here's what we know to be true. We know that God commands us to do stuff, but he never commands us to do stuff. He doesn't then give us the ability to do. You can find that, if you Google that on, on Google, you'll find every theologian ever said that statement in some way. It's traced back a lot of times to St. Augustine. What's interesting is this, and it's oftentimes said like this, what God commands, God empowers. I've, had, I've heard, you know, Warren Wearsby say it. I've heard people in the lobby uh, who no, nobody else here even knows come up to me and say, well, if God commands me to do it, he's going to help me, he's going to give me the power to do it. For Pastor Jason say it when he's preaching before. I probably said it before. People always, like all kinds of Christians, like a common Christian statement. If God commands something, he's going to empower it to be. You know what's interesting? Pre-Christian literature, we've got no trace of that. You look at all the other religions, you look at all the other things that are written, apart from the Old Testament, when the Holy Spirit comes on someone to enable them to do something, there's no trace of God and whatever God they believe in commanding something to be done and then Him being the one that gives the ability to do it. But that's normal Christianity. You go through the scriptures and what you see is God commands something, then He enables it. You look at Peter. Peter walks on water, Matthew chapter 14. But Peter doesn't do it until he gets commanded by Jesus to do it. Jesus comes walking up. They're freaking out. They think it's a ghost. It's kind of a funny story if you read it and look at really what's happening there. And then Peter says, if it's you, Jesus, tell me to come. Then Jesus says, come. And Peter gets out of the boat. And he, Peter doesn't walk on water every time he gets out of a boat, if you read the gospel, by the way. Read John chapter 21. John says, hey, that's Jesus up on the shore. He ditches him, leaves him there with all the fish, and he starts trudging through the water. He doesn't walk on the water, but in this moment in Matthew 14, he starts walking on the water. Why? Because Jesus is the one who told him, come, you come. if I command you, I'm going to enable you. And Peter does something that no human's ever done before. Now for a brief, and he takes his eyes off Jesus, he begins to sink, totally get that. But for a moment, he walks on water. Look at the feeding of the 5,000. A lot of times we talk about Jesus fed the 5,000. Jesus didn't feed the 5,000. Read the passage. Jesus says to his disciples, people, he sent them out teaching and they had been doing, they've been doing miracles, okay? So they've seen this happen, casting out demons and preaching with power. And then Jesus says, feed these people. And they said, we can't, we don't, we don't, we got five loaves, two feet, we can't feed these people. 
And then Jesus multiplies the bread, multiplies the fish, then gives it to the disciples, and the disciples feed the people. What he commands, he then empowers them to do. You see, Peter, Peter's a great example. Just follow his life. Peter's a guy, he stands in Acts chapter 2, he stands before thousands and thousands of people that are literally the very people who nailed Jesus to the cross, speaking to Jews who've been awaiting a Messiah. A Messiah has been promised, Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. Joel, he sees it, he starts citing some of these passages, and he says the Messiah, preaching about the Messiah, it's the day of Pentecost, they're all there. People are there after Pentecost, they're, they're coming, they're celebrating. And so all these Jews are there, and he says, you killed him. You nailed him to a tree, which is the worst kind of death. Anyone who's nailed to a tree is considered cursed. And Peter stands before this crowd of thousands and says this. The very people who killed his Messiah. What, do they think, what does he think is going to happen to him? And how does Peter have that supernatural boldness and courage to do that? Because this is the same guy that a few weeks earlier was standing in the temple courtyard and a little girl came up to him and says, Hey, weren't you with Jesus? And he starts swearing and saying, I don't know what you're talking about. Do you know what happens? Acts chapter 1 verse 8 happens. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. He says, wait, wait, wait. Don't go off and just try and obey me. You stay here. And then the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And you're going to receive power. Then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. And you know where Peter's standing at? He's standing in the middle of Jerusalem with the power of the Holy Spirit. You know what the Bible says when you place your faith in Jesus Christ? Ephesians chapter 1, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you. It's a deposit in you that will be in you until the day of redemption. So if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you prayed to receive Jesus as your Savior, the Holy Spirit lives within you. That's the very power of God. Ephesians chapter 3 is a huge passage for us as a church. It's a passage I preached the day that we launched this church. Talking about God being bigger than our theological boxes. We try to explain God. We can't explain God. He's so much bigger. And Paul's praying in Ephesians chapter 3. And he's trying to explain that God does more than we could ever ask or imagine. He says, now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, according to his power, not ours, that's at work, where? In us. He talks about that power a little bit earlier in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, I told you, it's about verse 13. He talks about the Holy Spirit being a deposit in us. And verse 18, he starts to pray there. And we learn about his power there too. Power is a huge word in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So when you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have an inheritance. Guess what it is? You get everything. One day, you're going to get it all. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power, and he talks about his power, what it's like, is like the working of his mighty strength, verse 20, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realm. So the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead that we celebrated last week, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you. So you need to throw off sin. He gives you the power to throw off the sin. You need to come back. You need supernatural courage to come back to the family of God. Come back. He'll empower you to do that. You need, you need power to be obedient as a, a spouse, as a, uh, an employee, as a boss, as a, whatever relationships you're in. He'll give you the power to do that. So you work out your salvation. It's hard work. It's continuous. It's strenuous. But he is going to empower you to do it. He's going to give you the desire to do it. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his purpose. And then what I love about this passage is Paul gets, he doesn't leave it ethereal. It's too huge of a command. It's too big of a deal in our spiritual journey. He doesn't just say, hey, go work out your salvation, be warmed and filled, and figure out what that means in your life. 
He gets real practical in verse 14. And in verse 14, he doesn't say some heroic, crazy thing you have to do. He doesn't say, so go be crucified. So go, you know, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Look at what he says. Verse 14, you want to get practical what it looks like to work out your salvation? Do everything without complaining or arguing. So he says, don't, don't complain. Don't argue. You want it practically to see how this works out? It's like he's talking to a guy who's about to go to his cubicle. Okay, it's not like, hey, you're about to go die on the mission field, and here's what I want you to know, to live as Christ and die as gain, be crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. No, he says, here's the deal. You want to live out and work out your salvation? Teacher who's going to your kindergarten class? Police officer? Mom who's going back to those kids? Don't complain. Don't argue. Except on second Tuesdays when your guy's not in the right office. Right? Isn't that what it said? Don't complain unless you're in the express aisle with 12 items or less and homeboy's got 20. I mean, it's not like he didn't, it's not like 13, it's 20. And you counted, right? He didn't, but you did. You don't complain unless that other person's like a real moron. And Jesus, you don't know what it's like when the microwave breaks. You didn't have a microwave. You can only complain if it's a major appliance, not a mind, like my water thing broke on the fridge recently. You can't complain about the water thing, Scott, but if the whole fridge breaks, then maybe. What does the passage say? So you've got to test. That's not what I'm saying. What does the Bible say? It says do everything in all things. Don't complain. Do you know why? Because complaining is a sign that you're not content. You know what it is when you're a sign you're not content? Is you're not satisfied with God's plan for your life. One person I read this week talked about complaining, said this, being discontent with God's will, which is what we're doing when we complain, because even the difficulty and even the suffering gives us opportunity to have fellowship with Christ when we realize that to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's maturity. When he began a good work in you, we continue to mature and be faithful. Then we stand out when we don't complain because we're working out our salvation. Here's what it is to complain. Being discontent with God's will is an expression of unbelief that prevents one from doing what pleases God. Our complaining is a sign that we lack faith. What does Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 say? If you don't know, let me tell you. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Our complaining is a sign that we lack faith. We're going to talk more about contentment when we get to Philippians chapter 4. Being content in all circumstances, plenty and want, and all the different things that happen. When we complain, it's not a big deal to most of us. We can, we can joke around about it, we talk about it. You ever hear this statement from somebody? Oh, I'm, this happened, blah, 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 blah. It's a first world problem. You live in the first world. No kidding, it's a first world problem. You don't live in the third world. You're not selling gum on the street so you can buy clean drinking water. Totally get it. Your ice dispenser doesn't work at your house. First world problem. Totally understand that. You live in North Raleigh. Do you know what we're really acknowledging? I'm complaining and I know it's lame. That's what we're saying when we say first world problem. And we don't think it's a big deal. God thinks it's a big deal. What Paul's probably alluding to here is the Israelites complaining in the Old Testament. And we watched them, right? And, and they crossed the Red Sea. And three days later, they're complaining. So God wiped out enemies that have held your people in oppression for hundreds of years. He's now given you freedom. Three days later, you're complaining that God's not providing the way you want him to. You know why we want water? God gives them water. We want food. Gives them manna from heaven. We're sick of the manna. We want meat. You know what it says in Numbers chapter 11? It's a funny passage of scripture, actually. If you read on your own, I was reading yesterday. God says, I'm going to give you so much meat, it's going to come out of your nose. And I think, oh, that's a good parenting. Oh, yeah, 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 you don't like it. I'm going to give you you eat so much broccoli. God's not saying it because he's annoyed. You know what he's saying it for? God's saying it because they lack faith. 
You don't trust me to provide? I just delivered you from Egypt and, and wiped out the Egypt and killed Pharaoh. And you don't trust me to give you a meal you're going to like. You lack faith, he's saying to them. And depend upon me. And we, we joke about being, our discontentment is a sign that we lack faith. He's saying to work out your salvation. You want to know if you're working on your salvation? Are you complaining? Because this is a big deal. Paul alludes to it, to the Corinthians. He talks to them about complaining. And he says what happens to the Israelites. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 10, he says, And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. God takes this seriously. And here's Paul writing to this church in Philippi. He's saying to them, do everything without complaining. Do you remember how this church was started? Week one of this series, when we were looking at the book of Philippians, I told you the context, because context, 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 is a huge key for studying the Bible. Context of Philippians is Acts chapter 16. It's when the church in Philippi was started. The first convert came to Christ, a woman named Lydia. Then the next convert, a demon-possessed gal. Then the next convert, a Philippian jailer. Do you remember how the Philippian jailer came to Christ? Who's maybe a leader in this church now? The Philippian jailer came to Christ because Paul and his buddy were preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 16, and then people got upset with them for preaching the gospel, and they beat them, flogged them, fellowship with Christ, and threw them in jail. And do you remember what they did? They started singing hymns. I'm sure somebody in the jail was upset they weren't singing contemporary songs. Paul, where's your guitar? You know, I don't know what they did. But they weren't complaining. They had just been flogged and beaten and now are in prison. I could see if I got thrown in prison for preaching the gospel today. But I'm being faithful. I know what you want me to do. And you put me here? Not Paul and Silas. It's God's will. We're here, so you got us here. So we're going to sing hymns now. The prisoners can come to Christ. And maybe the jailer will come to Christ. And who knows what God's going to do when God shows up. Does miraculous stuff. The Israelites, he kills them. I'm trying to decide, who do I want to be like? But who are we like? Like, if, if somebody 2,000 years after us being here right now wrote a book about us, would they read a book? Like, we read the you know, Israelites cross the Red Sea, and three days later they're complaining, and we're like, what idiots? And then, well, what about us? So Jesus died, gave you new life, and you're complaining because you can't find the remote? I would, would, I'd just be like, what in the world? And they even had, they couldn't just think which channel they wanted to watch. They had to have a device. How weird is that? 2,000 years from now, what's that going to be like? We have the gospel. So what if they're suffering? So what if they're... Do you know what you deserve? Hell, death, separation from... That's not what you have. No matter what happens in your life, you have Christ. Nothing can take that from you. And Paul says, work out your salvation. And here's how you know you're working out your salvation. Don't complain. Don't grumble. Don't argue with each other. Show selfishness. You're not doing the thing that Jesus did. Having the same attitude as Christ, who didn't consider himself equal to God, even though he was. He held it open-handedly. Hold everything in your life open-handed. Obey. He became obedient to the point of death. That's what Paul's saying in this passage. He says, if I run in labor and I die and I get martyred, that's awesome. Because he want to become obedient to death like Christ. Even the, Christ even became obedient to death on a cross. And so Paul goes on and he says, here's why I want you to do everything without complaining. So that, so that, verse 15, here's the reason. Here's why you work out your salvation. Here's why you trust in God's power. Here's why you don't complain. So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault and a crooked and depraved generation. In which you shine like stars. You stick out like a light in darkness in the universe. As you hold out the word of life, you've got the very word of life. And as you live your life in obedience to Christ, people see that life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ. He's writing to his friends of Philippians. That I didn't run or labor for nothing. 
But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering, so use the running analogy, now I'm using a, a religious analogy, maybe a pagan religion, or maybe what we used to do, what they used to do in the Old Testament, where you pour out a drink offering on the sacrifice. The main sacrifice is there. Paul's saying, if my life is taken from me and I'm martyr for my faith, may it complement your life of faith on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. He says to them. He says, I am glad and rejoice with all of you so that you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I have joy. Even if I, he's in jail right now, and he says, I rejoice, even if they decide to take my life, which we know isn't going to happen in this case, but later does for Paul. He's saying, if I die, I'm going to be rejoicing. So I want you to rejoice too. Now, this isn't rejoicing like Americans rejoice when Osama bin Laden's killed. Hey, Paul's ridded of this earth. He's gone off this earth. This is rejoicing like when Duke wins the national championship. And you're a Duke fan, not the NC State fans. Duke fans... Well, the way I texted with one guy in our church, um, the leader of our Celebrate Recovery Ministry, Jim Hendren, and we were texting, he's a Duke fan, and uh, he's still my friend, but I texted him, and uh, we were talking about it, and he's saying, I couldn't go to sleep last night, I was so excited that my team won, because it was victory. What Paul's saying here is, this is victory, if I die, if I get killed for Christ, that's gain. That means I get the, the ultimate goal was I wanted Christ. That was the prize. That's what I was going for. And so if they kill me, I get him. And that means God's done with me and I've done whatever I was supposed to do here because I was living for Christ. So rejoice. That's a different way of thinking than this world. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed. He began a work in you. He's still doing the work. And so it's continuous. It's strenuous effort. But he gives you the power to do it. And it's seen when you are content where he has you and you know he's got a plan for you to work out his purposes he's going to give you the desires he's going to give you the ability to do it so that you will shine like a star in this dark place you should be different not because you got a dog strapped to your back by the way because you look like your savior who became obedient to death even death on a cross let's pray father thank you for dying for us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring for us. Thank you for empowering us. Thank you for caring enough to not just leave us here to die of old age or pick seashells, who knows, do what, waste our lives. That you've got a plan for us, that you want to use us. And sometimes it's tough. Sometimes it's tough in relationships. Sometimes it's tough financially. Sometimes it's tough physically. But we rejoice that you're using us. Help us to have the mind in us, which is also in your son Jesus, to work on our salvation, to stand out, to shine out for you. God, give us the power to do it. I pray for each one here who has different things they're facing. I pray if there's a lost person here who doesn't know what it is to have a relationship with you, that you'd have them trust your son, Jesus. I pray for those who are married to somebody who doesn't know Jesus. It's one of the toughest things that's ever happened in their lives. Maybe someone gave them counsel not to do it, and they did it, and now they regret it. God, give them the power and ability to be a faithful follower of yours, to win their spouse to Christ, and I pray you'd save their spouse. I pray for the person who needs to come home today to turn back to Christ. You give them that supernatural courage. And God, I pray for those of us who complain and think about it this week and how you just showed me how quickly complaining is on the tip of my tongue. And I didn't even realize how much I lack faith. Help me. Grow me in my faith. And for some of you here, you might need to repent. You don't have to pray the same words I'm praying. Just as we're talking to God, you talk to the Lord. You need to talk to him about something in your life. You need to repent. You need to turn to him. You want to trust him as your savior. You talk to him. He's got a step of obedience. He's been speaking into your heart. You speak to him about that. And Father God, we just come before you as your people. And we love you, even though it looks like such an adequate love so many times. We love you and keep taking us back and keep using us. Cleanse us, purify us. We confess our sins to you.
And we know that you're faithful and that you're just. And we trust in your performance and not ours. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And there are a lot of people in our church I know that want to express their faith. And they want to take steps of faith. And some of those people are going to do that today through baptism. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to watch a video of uh, four of the people that are going to be baptized today. So after the service, if you'd like to be baptized, what you can do is when we go out the doors here in just a moment. In fact, you can get up right now while watching the video if you want. You can go out the doors here. And instead of going to the lobby where the popcorn is and all that stuff is at, um, just turn left. And there's going to be some decision counselors there. And if you want to be baptized, they're just going to ask you two questions. They're going to ask you, um, do you know for sure that you stood before God, you're going to go to heaven? And they're going to ask you why you know that. And then they're going to ask you, why do you want to be baptized? And so then they're going to show you from the Bible, if your answers aren't what the Bible says, they're going to show you from the Bible what it says. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, and you're not sure about one, or you've got questions about one, now would be a great time to go out there, and you could talk to some of those folks. But what we're going to do, um, as a congregation and the rest of us, is we're going to watch this video of these people, and then after the service, we're going to have these four people getting baptized. We're going to have some other people getting baptized. We're going to give them a couple minutes to get some different clothes on. And we're going to meet underneath the awning as you were coming in, if you came in the front door. Um, the awning that was out there by the first-time guest kiosk and whatnot. We've got a baptismal set up. You probably saw it on your way in. If not, I don't know how you missed that. But anyway, uh, it's out there. And we're going to watch this video. We're going to hear about these people and how God changed their lives, why they want to get baptized, and we're going to go celebrate with them and with some other f- folks in a little bit. So also, in, in case I forget to tell you after the video, if you've got kids and bridge kids, go get them before you go out there to watch the baptisms because the workers want to come see this too. So we're going to watch these testimonies and then we'll celebrate baptism together.